Well, welcome back as we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour. Let us also welcome back George Kaloff. He is the managing partner at the Resolute Group and the president at Data Orbital Consulting, the best political consultant I know. We are delighted and privileged that he's based here in Arizona, though he represents clients uh, across the country. George, welcome back. Glad to have you. Sorry we didn't uh, catch up last week, but you were on the road and uh, hope you had a good trip. I did. I did. Always good to be on set. I'm Thanks. looking forward to chatting today. Great to have you. There's so much I want to talk to you about. Let me <laughs> let me start here, and this is a bit amorphous, but maybe others will kind of have a sense of it, too. I don't know. Up until maybe three weeks ago or so, maybe even two, George, there seemed to be an intangible but, but yet sense – that Republicans and Republican candidates were really on the march and November was going to be a wave election. And it, you know, it may be, it may not be. I don't know. None of us know. The hardest thing to predict is the future, Yogi Berra put it. But it kind of, there is this feeling that some momentum has been lost. There, uh, Am I wrong in seeing that or feeling that? Maybe you see it or feel it too. Maybe others in the audience. It just feels like, yeah. We're going to do okay. We're going to win, but not. it's not going to be a wave election. There just seems to be a little less air and helium in the balloon. It feels like that. It feels like that. Am I the only one who senses that? You're not. You're not. I feel it too. Uh, numbers back it up. One of the key statistics, and I can't remember who it was, but a national uh, polling firm or a national um, news outlet that hired a polling firm found that, you know, as of even as recently as two months ago, uh, Republicans were 6% more enthusiastic to vote than Democrats. Okay. That's substantial from a political perspective. In the last two weeks, that is close to 1%. Okay. We also know that the generic, what we call the generic ballot test, so when you ask not names of individuals, just would you vote for a Republican or Democrat for Congress, uh, Republicans had a two- or three-point advantage as of two months ago. Right now, it's a couple-point advantage for Democrats. Okay. So anecdotally, we're seeing it. Numerically, we're seeing it. I'd love to unpack why? Yeah. Now, the one thing I preface all this, though, is to say we're before Labor Day. Yep. Um, this time, six years ago, Ron Johnson, the current senator from Wisconsin, was down supposedly 11 points uh, to find gold was running against him. So uh, there's a lot of room left to go for any uh, basketball fans out there. This is like the last five minutes of a basketball game. Anything can happen. But nonetheless, there is definitely an enthusiasm that has or a deflation that has happened. Yeah, that's the right word. Enthusiasm gap. That's what I was searching for. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, let's break it down. Go ahead, sir. So, look, I mean, part of the reason why we are here is an issue that is exceptionally important to me. I know it's exceptionally important to you and probably to most listeners, which is the issue of life. Since the Dobbs decision was handed down, and you and I even talked about it shortly after on the air, which was, who does this benefit more? Does this benefit Democrats or Republicans? It looks like at this point it's benefiting Democrats more. Why? Because this has enthused um, traditional Democratic-based voters that are white progressive, right? It mm-hmm. has enthused them more. It's not enthusing Hispanic uh, registered Democrats uh, because they're with us on the life issue, but it's enthusing the left. And frankly, because Republicans were already exceptionally enthused, it has not affected our numbers uh-huh. nearly as much in the positive. Okay. Now, what we do about that, though, is going to be critical. We're seeing some warning signs in races around the country, where uh, one in particular, New York 19, the 19th Congressional District, where the Republican lost by about a point, point and a half mm-hmm. in a very swing district. But 
the Democrat hit the Republican on abortion, and what did the Republican do? Not respond. Yeah. Right. So we yeah. know that that cannot be the response here. But that seems to be the thing that is causing this enthusiasm gap to shrink or this deflation to occur in the Republican advantage. Interesting. Okay. And where that matters most is going to be probably, um, you tell me, I'm, I'm, I'm just postulating here, probably Senate and governor races because the governors, you know, uh, now have uh, abortion issues on their plate uh, because it's been turned back to the states, state legislators and governors. And maybe the Senate then too, U.S. Senate races because senators vote on federal judges, right? And if you look at some of the um, polling on the Senate, now you, you, you gave a good example on Ron Johnson as to why we shouldn't feel deflation just yet. But if you do survey the big races at the Senate, uh, Ohio, Georgia, Nevada, here, Pennsylvania, I think those would be the ones. We're doing pretty well in Ohio. I think that's the J.D. Vance uh, race, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. I think I think that's looking just about, I don't know, last I saw, last couple of days, I think it's running about even. But in Pennsylvania, uh, it looks like Herschel Walker's got some ground to make up, if I'm not, uh, excuse me, in Georgia, Herschel Walker yeah. has some ground to make up. And in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz has some ground to make up. Uh, Blake Masters is getting beaten up here on ads and it's maybe a case of him not having yet launched his very um, aggressively just yet. Maybe he's waiting for after Labor Day, which is when people start to pay attention, and maybe it's a better sure. use of money. But what's your sense? I mean, I'm right about governors and senators, aren't I? Yes, you are. You are. I mean, obviously, those are the high-profile races, but I'll even go broader. The races that this is going to affect the most are races that are dominated or states that are dominated or districts that are dominated by white, uh, affluent educated voters, okay. whether their registration is Democrat, independent, or Republican. Okay. So statewide in Arizona, it's going to matter, but there's a critical component here. Arizona has a strong Hispanic population. Mm -hmm. They're not animated mm. by the abortion issue in the negative, even if they are registered Democrats, because frankly, a lot more Hispanics are pro-life, right? Mm -hmm. We know that, and that's what, you know, something that we've talked about from a cultural perspective. But unfortunately, in states like um, even Georgia that does not necessarily have a high Hispanic population, right. but has a growing uh, white college-educated population that's going to be a problem or certain districts in Arizona, um, there's not a lot of room to go. But the problem that also happens, Seth, is that when you respond in a way that then upsets your own base, that's going to cause you issues too. So some have elected to respond to this abortion issue by then moderating their position on abortion versus talking about what the extreme position of the left. We know actually it is less popular to support abortion until birth or to support uh, what we call kind of uh, partial birth abortion when an infant is born alive and they are refused care. That is a common uh, that's a that's a common position for anyone who's supported by Planned Parenthood. So that means that most of the people that are running on the Democratic ticket in today's United States of America, those positions are not popular. That needs to be our response is to call them out on it, not to moderate our own positions. Right. We have to own uh, we have to take the punch to give a punch. We cannot uh, be off kilter and and, and try to. So that's a big um, one. That, that, that's such a huge thing that I would unpack a little bit with you this way, George. You tell me where I'm right and where I'm wrong here. When a generic question is asked about supporting abortion rights or not, and you see these majorities, they're not overwhelming, but when you see these majorities, slight majorities favoring abortion rights, one has to understand that this includes partial birth abortion, because when Elizabeth Warren or Nancy Pelosi or 
Hillary Clinton or any really Democrat talks about um, uh, supporting abortion rights. They are talking about partial birth abortion, too. And there's no poll that shows a majority supports that. I mean, the majorities are pretty clear that they don't support that. So that's been folded in there. This is a challenge for Republicans to turn this into an argument and a soundbite, maybe. But it is the challenge that Republicans have to unpack in, in discussing this, right? It is. It is. And I will tell you, one of the most animating issues for Hispanics relative to the governor's race is the fact that Katie Hobbs supports partial birth abortion. Right. Okay, that's a big deal, Seth. And so it is to be it is to our detriment if our candidates, if you're running as a Republican, if we choose to one, ignore. Mm-hmm. So if you're getting attacked and you ignore the attacks on the abortion issue, it's not going to go well. The Molinaros race in New York 19 showed that. But yeah. two, and more importantly, if you then choose to moderate your position, what's what do you think is going to happen to voters like me and you and others that are pro-life? Do you think we're going to gladly get up? I mean, we're not going to, of course, vote for uh, the Democrat, but I don't know. Maybe in some of these races, some of these voters don't necessarily end up voting for the Republican if they truly go totally off kilter, not in left field on this issue. That's a big problem. And then that makes you disingenuous if you're attacking your opponent on being too extreme because now you have seated ground uh, to them on this issue. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Uh, yeah. Uh, one message I want Republican candidates to take, take away from our conversation is that you can not cower on this issue. If you are pro-life, explain why. Life should not be something we should be on the defensive about, but killing preborn children should be something the Democratic Party should be on the ropes about. I have to take a quick commercial break. That's a big statement. I'd love for you to come back on it and also maybe give a thought or two on how this uh, debt relief uh, plan that Joe Biden just put into action might play out, because it seems to me that's an opportunity. Uh, That's actually, it seems to me, low-hanging fruit for Republicans to exploit. We'll talk about a lot of that when we come right back. I'm Seth Liebson. He's George Kaloff, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the good people at Midas Gold Group. In spite of the Biden administration's insurances, you know inflation has hit record highs, including food and gas prices in this misguided economy. The best shelter for your wealth is gold and other precious metals, which is why I own mine from the Midas Gold Group, the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group. You can too. Check them out at MidasGoldGroup.com. That's MidasGoldGroup.com or give them a call at 480-360-3000, 480-360-3000. The only precious metals dealer that I, Seb Gorka, and thousands of you already use. George Kaloff is our guest. He is the president of Data Orbital and uh, the Resolute Group. George, um, Last thoughts on abortion, and then I want to talk to you about how the student debt plan that Joe Biden unfurled this week is is playing out. But go ahead if you want on uh, last thoughts on the abortion issue. Yeah, I mean, last thoughts is we need to communicate with our with our Hispanic friends about this issue, and we need to highlight the extremism of the left on this issue. We cannot be afraid to do so. Good. We cannot be afraid to even highlight the extremism with independents and just traditional suburban voters, because as much as Yes, maybe today, right now in public opinion, it's not on our side to do a total total ban on abortion, but it is exceptionally less popular to allow abortions until birth and to allow uh, uh, partial birth abortion. 
Okay. That, that is are... such an important takeaway. It is monumentally less popular to go with what the Democrats actually believe on abortion than what we actually believe on abortion. Okay. 100 percent. And we need go. to be unabashed in it. That's the takeaway. And we need to run on that and not shy away from it. And then we need to talk about issues that voters actually want to talk about, which is inflation, the economy, which I know is going to get into what we're about to talk yep. about and secure communities. Good. Good. All right. Uh, for today, let's uh, talk a little bit about the student debt thing. I think this is ripe for us to exploit. I don't think that the word exploit is even right. Just highlight. Yeah. I mean, look, Joe Biden did something that as of April of, of earlier this year, Nancy Pelosi said he didn't have the power to do. You, you Anytime you know, by the way, uh, it's amazing in politics, anytime members of your own party that are in tough races, I mean, I think it was six or seven people running for Senate from places like, you know, Bennett in Colorado, yep. To, um, to Federson and other places, to so many congressional candidates on the left who immediately, immediately backed away and distanced yep. themselves from what Joe Biden did, yep. that's when you know there's a problem. Because, yep. of course, when you select, and so someone like myself who paid their student loans or others who didn't even get student loans, when we don't get any benefit, but those individuals that do, um, that's a big problem. And Americans don't like selective. And then in addition to that, Americans truck drivers like are bailing kids. out. Pipe fitters are bailing out Harvard students. That's what this is about. One hundred percent. One hundred percent to the tune of six hundred billion dollars, right. which if you believed there were, quote unquote, savings from the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, quote unquote, right. I say, right. if you believe there were savings, all of that. And as this has been verified, all of those savings would be wiped away right. if and then some. If this passes, because they're estimating somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to 600 billion dollars in order to make this happen, because obviously you cannot magically make it go away. Someone has to pay for it. That's right. This is not magic. That's right. That's right. The economic warfare against the middle class. It's a funny thing, because if you were to ask people what party represents the middle class, generally the conventional wisdom would have been the Democratic Party. But the Republican Party at times has been able to grab and run with it. You think of Reagan Democrats, for example, uh, 1980. You think of Donald Trump. It is My guess is J.D. Vance is going to do very well on this issue. People like who, who can speak at that level, right? A hundred percent. That's why J.D. Vance's opponent, even though he, um, again, he's a he's a progressive as they come, Ryan, he immediately went and pushed back against the Biden administration's policies. He understands how detrimental it is to working class Americans, how detrimental it is in places like Ohio, because the realignment is solid and set and secure. The Republican Party now is the party of the working class, and this does not benefit. When you have it up until 125000 for an individual, 250, who do you think who do you think student loans is being forgiven? I mean, yeah. again, even if your own student loans are being forgiven, yeah. there's still something wrong about that. Someone has to pay for it. And, and more importantly, amazingly, and not a lot of people know this, Seth, they used the emergency declaration That's... under COVID and some super convoluted 9-11 right. era rule right. to actually allow this via executive order. That should be unconscionable to the average American. They were they're bending the rules in their favor to, frankly, win political points. That's Th- all think of it is. this way, folks. Think of it this way, George, if I have this right. Think of it this way. They are using COVID-19 as the national emergency to justify pipe fitters and truckers and cops and teachers bailing out Harvard graduates and Ivy League gra- college graduates while they said The COVID-19 national emergency was over and no longer applicable when it comes to defending our border under Title 42. Think about it that way. 100 percent, because it's selective. It's politics to them. 
it's all politics to Joe Biden. And he has advisors because amazingly, you know, Joe Biden wasn't even in favor of this, even as recently as a number of months ago. He didn't think he had the power to do that. But because they can't, they're so ineffective in getting things through Congress. And there's advisors talking in his ear and progressives because this has been a this has been a dream idea for far left wing progressives like Elizabeth Warren and AOC for years and months on this issue. And they finally got, quote unquote, moderate Joe Biden to buy in on this. Because, again, of course, we all know he is not. I use quotes because he's not moderate anymore. And and they're just spooning, they're spoon feeding him these policies. Now, look, uh, you know, with what we talked about, sure, right now there's a deflation in terms of Republican enthusiasm. But what we know for sure, and you and I have talked about this at nauseum, um, is the Democrats are amazing at getting in their own way and are continuing to overstep and do the wrong thing. And I think this is going to be another example of it. George, I only have about a minute and a half left. Do you want to say a word about safe communities? This is a big one, and it's going to apply to particularly our Maricopa County attorney's race, I think. Look, we we know how important it is to secure the border. It's no question with now the attention that Governor Ducey has gotten at putting the uh, the shipping containers in the gaps in our border, at the talk about launching invasions that Carrie Lake, the Republican nominee for governor, has done. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I mean, the, we're seeing this across the country. Why do you think that that's important? Even if your top issue isn't securing the border, there's a consequence with borders not being secure. What is that consequence? That you get drugs and fentanyl that come into our communities that are getting to the hands of our children, and they are killing them at record rates. We know the opioid epidemic started in places like rural America, and now it's in our streets. It's in Scottsdale. It's in North Phoenix. It's in places that you wouldn't have imagined to, to be in because our borders are porous. They right. Just the other day, they had a massive bus at the border where they had uh, tens of thousands of pills that were in some semi-truck below some of the floorboards. And it affects races here because the party that wanted to defund the police, the party that is vehemently opposed to securing the border, now has to run in communities in the city of Phoenix and Scottsdale and other places that are under-policed, that the police have been under attack. Now the borders are porous. We've got drugs in our communities. And what are the Democrats going to do about it? What are they going to go back on all of the positions that they've held over the last number of months? No. It's because Republicans is the party of safe communities and secure communities and the average suburban voter wants to ensure that their communities are secure. They want to see um, the homeless off the streets and being taken care of in the proper and correct way. And the other side wants to put their heads in the sand and pretend like this issue doesn't exist. And that's not going to cut it anymore. When Richard Nixon defeated George McGovern in 1972, the theme about McGovern was the Democratic Party was the party of the three A's, acid, abortion, and amnesty. We're pretty much there again. That got Nixon 49 states. We should think along those lines. George Kaloff, you are the best man. It's good to catch up with you again. We'll talk to you next week. Always good to talk to you, Seth. God bless and Godspeed. I'm Seth Leibson. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Two things I love in this business is getting really smart people on the show who know what they're talking about and also getting them on when they have an op-ed that same day. In the Wall Street Journal today, Real Mark Garrett has a very important piece that um, really goes to everything we've been talking about when it comes to the attempted assassination of Salman Rushdie and all the issues surrounding it. How the Salman Rushdie fatwa changed the world is real Mark Garrick's piece today. Uh, Rule is a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is a former CIA uh, Directorate of Operations author. Uh, and if you want to follow other of his work, fdd.org. Uh, Mr. Garrick, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. 
You know, I got to um, tell you this uh, Salman Rushdie story. I have been fascinated uh, with it since 1989 um, when I was in college and I saw a very, very curious thing take place, which is a lack of defense for Salman Rushdie and a kind of, if you will pardon the pun, veiled acknowledgement that or at least a veiled defense of the Khomeini fatwa that we didn't have a right in the West to criticize it. Um, This was an interesting thing that I did not see coming in the 1980s, and it seems like it's been ever with us. Those willing to stand up for Salman Rushdie were few and far between. People may not realize that early on, but they were. And so many years later, the fatwa is still with us and the attempted killing of Mr. Rushdie obviously still very much with us. I just wanted to lay that as a predicate. You're willing, you're 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 perfectly um, uh, free to talk about it if you want. But the big important thing to draw from your piece is, though we had Islamic terrorism here and there until 1989, by my read of history, most of the terrorism out of the Middle East was based on nationalism, not religion, until the Iranian Revolution. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think it can get a little complicated sure. in the sense that, uh, depending upon whom you're talking about, say the Palestinians, that there's a admixture. Yeah. Okay. So you have uh, you have nationalism blending with Islamism. Fair enough. Uh, you even have that to a certain extent in the Iranian Revolution, though Khomeini, you know, explicitly tries to move away from that and uh, attacks the very idea of nationalism as does his successor to this day. We have in the West, this has been your life's work, uh, fair to say, I think, we have in the West a problem with not taking these kinds of fatwas seriously. We didn't take the the Khomeini fatwa uh, seriously in 1989. We didn't take the bin Laden fatwas in the 90s very seriously either until they proved to us that we really ought to be taking them seriously. But it's a lesson we fail to live up to learning again and again. Is that fair? Well, I think we I think at the time it occurred Certainly, uh, you know, MI, MI5 took it seriously. Scotland Yard took it very seriously. Uh, I, I, what happens is uh, it gets very complicated and conflicted. Uh, so not, you know, very, not that long after the fatwa was issued, um, the Europeans started an outreach. The French and the Germans started a process of engagement. The fatwa was still active. I mean, later on, uh, you had various Iranian officials try to downplay it, but uh, uh, they never rena- never renounced it. And uh, but you know, greed gets in there, co- commerce gets in there, uh, geopolitics uh, can get in there, and uh, you know, it made uh, focusing on that fatwa more difficult. Um, you know, I think. Uh, Rushdie, uh, I mean, he himself, uh, you know, uh, has pointed out more eloquently than anyone else, the, you know, the darkness that arrived with that fatwa on him personally, and also, I think, on free speech and the discussion of Islam in the West. Um, I think it has to be said that also that, you know, 
he came to the United States uh, and he began to live more freely. Uh, And he was he was right to do so. And he lived almost 20 years, both in Great Britain and the United States, with not much uh, security, uh, which I suppose is the upside if there is a silver lining in this yes there is and that's right too he he over the subsequent years dropped or shall we say lessened and lessened the security uh apparatus around him or his feeling that he needed it um this was a short segment just laying a couple predicates i have a i have a longer one coming up i want to delve into what the iranian revolution of 1979 did mean in changing the world, as you kind of get into in your Wall Street Journal piece today. I'm Seth Leibson. He's real Mark Garrett. You can read his piece at the Wall Street Journal today, how the Salman Rushdie fatwa changed the world. We'll get into that when we come right back, and we will both be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We are delighted to have Real Mark Garrick with us. He is a senior fellow at the Foundations for the uh, the Foundation for the uh, Defense of Democracy, FDD.org. He is a, a former uh, CIA director of operations, author of many books, including The Wave, Man, God, and the Ballot Box in the Middle East. His piece in the Wall Street Journal, How the Salman Rushdie Fought What Changed the World. To talk about uh, the changed world and the changed face of the world and terrorism after the fatwa came about, rule, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the impact, you have to look at the impact in the West, and you have to look at in the Middle East. Okay. And uh, in the Middle East, I think the impact might have been even been larger. It started a wave where, I mean, people became much more nervous, much more cautious about uh, expressing views that could conceivably be anti-religious, uh, and uh, I think you saw, um, and you've been seeing it for a while, uh, a resurgence of, um, you can either call them more traditional beliefs or more traditional belie- beliefs uh, put in a very militant fashion. Uh, and it had a deadening effect, I think, on intellectual debates throughout the region. And that has, uh, that has continued. Uh, the Middle East is intellectually far less vibrant today than it was before 1989. Um, That's a complicated discussion, but certainly uh, the fatwa started a process uh, that has been deleterious to the region. And the West, I think you've had an accumulation of several factors that uh, the fatwa crystallized, and that is you've had uh, fear that uh, sanctions... uh, to, you know, by radical Muslims could, in fact, uh, touch you. And mm-hmm. so you check yourself in your discussions. And also, I think it fed uh, what uh, you might call, you know, Tiermondism, the third worldism, that said that, you know, discussions of other cultures by Westerners is somehow illegitimate. Mm-hmm. And in and th- and that sense, uh, you know, Rushdie was culpable, he was guilty. Um, and I have to say, I mean, there are a lot, as you said at the beginning, there are a lot of folks who should have defended Rushdie. Mm-hmm. Some of them were dragged into defending mm-hmm. him. Uh, Rushdie wasn't really liked. At the, uh, I mean, some people would have described him back then as a very dislikable fellow. That's right. Uh, folks on the right, many folks on the right didn't really care for him because he was very anti-American. Right. Uh, so I think uh, the issue of free speech, which should have been 
you know, uh, in the center and should have been the primary thing driving a lot of folks uh, wasn't. Uh, and I think that, you know, the Islamic studies departments and universities are not exactly arenas for a vivid and vigorous discussion. Uh, and I think the fatwa uh, certainly uh, either began or accelerated that process. And, and certainly one would say exposed it even at a minimum. Um, would you say your expertise, your rendering and reading of this history, would you say that either the Iranian Revolution of 79 or the fatwa of 89 also, I mean, it came from a, a, a Shiite leader in the Ayatollah Khomeini, but did you, would you say it also changed Sunni Islam a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it had a huge echo mm-hmm. uh, in Sunni communities. There were Sunni communities uh, in India and in Great Britain that uh, you know took up the calling first, and uh, Khomeini came after them. Uh-huh. So it, it helped to radicalize. It, uh, as I say in the piece, uh, Khomeini was able to sort of jujitsu the idea of the West's universal values, the claim to have universal values. And they said, if you can have universal values, we can too. And one of them uh, uh, could, in fact, be a capital offense. So uh, it, it, it significantly transformed the discussion uh, in the West. And as I say in the piece, uh, there are you know, some several great provocative scholars, mm-hmm. uh, um, John Wandsborough, Patricia Crone, Michael Cook, the first two are no longer with us, Michael Cook, Bernard Lewis, his chair at Princeton, um, who if they were you know, trying to get tenure today because of some of their very provocative writings about Islamic history, probably couldn't. Right. Uh, and I think that's a very, very sad thing. It's part of sort of the intellectual withering of higher education in the West. So it not only had an impact of sorts with the Sunni uh, community, it had an impact on intellectuals in the West who weren't even themselves Muslim. Definitely. I mean, it had, it, the, I mean the first and probably most deleterious impact is on um, Muslim intellectuals, both Sunni and Shiite, okay. in the Muslim world. And the secondary impact, which isn't small, is uh, also on intellectual discourse in the West, particularly uh, when you look at uh, a critical eye at Islamic uh, Islamic civilization. And I mean critical, not I don't mean that. I mean it's inevitably invidious. I mean I'm not I'm not suggesting that scholars do anything on Islamic civilization that they don't do on Western civilization. Sure, <laughs> yeah, uh, right, right, right. The, that that is in fact the problem is that. Uh, Uh, We have become, I think, much more guarded, and that's regrettable. Uh, Mr. Garrick, would you say that you would agree that we didn't probably take it seriously enough in 79 or 89? Uh, We probably didn't take it seriously enough in the 90s. Um, if if you agree with those predicates, do you think we're in the same place now? Are we are have we been awakened to the problem, or are we still kind of in a while England slept position? You mean on the issue of in, uh, Islamic uh, terrorism? Islamic terrorism. Um, I mean, I think we are certainly much better aware of it than we were uh, in the past. Okay. Bureaucratically, that's without a doubt. Sure. I, entered the uh, uh, clandestine service, we had three people working on counterterrorism and the director of operations. There you go. Uh, now you have hundreds. Yeah. Now, 
you know, quantity doesn't make quality. Right. But uh, there is, without a doubt, there's a greater focus on it. Uh, I think, again, uh, because these questions are hard, because they use they inevitably involve hard power, that uh, we get nervous in talking about them if it, it, when we have to actually use that hard power. Right. And Iran, Iran is a special case because there you don't have it detached. It's not non-state terrorism. It's state terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's much more complicated. And also, Iran is an oil-rich, gas-rich country, and uh, you know the Europeans in particular would like to get their hands more on the, those resources. So um, you know, it, uh, Iran is able to get away with a lot, and uh, I think the United States since 1979 uh, has tended to sort of turn the other cheek. Okay where when the Iranians reach out and hit us, uh, we tend to ignore it and hope it goes away, uh, and we have failed to respond to it. I would note, I mean, first and foremost, when they bombed the uh, barracks in Beirut, yeah. um, you know, George Shultz, Secretary of State for Ronald Reagan, you know, really strongly recommended that we militarily retaliate directly against Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did not do so. That's right. uh, Reagan Reagan did not agree. And I think that's established a pattern, actually, where uh, they draw blood and uh, we ignore them and hope that somehow a reform movement will develop inside of the Islamic Republic. Uh, last question for you. You've been generous with your time. I appreciate it. You are a former Iranian targets officer with the CIA. 79, 89, compare it to, to Iran today. Is Iran any more liberal than it was in those early years of the revolution, or is it about the same, or as it hardened, would you guess, or gather? Well, I mean, it, it ebbs and flows. I think right now we're seeing a uh, hardening uh, that uh, the, uh, the supreme leader Ali Khamenei is trying to uh, create a more militant and more Islamic society, and that internal reform, which was really almost gutted in 1999, continues to to decline. Um, you know, it, you did have in 2009 an explosion of a pro-democracy movement called. The Green Movement, it was crushed. Uh, periodically, you have uh, substantial nationwide uh, demonstrations. Uh, they also get violently crushed. Uh, so I'd say the society has actually become less tolerant, less intellectually interesting, less critical of itself, uh, and folks uh, live in much more fear today than they did, say, in the, in the late 1990s. Something we should all be aware of as we engage in these efforts to appease Iran with a new nuclear deal. Mr. Garrick, you're wonderful, and I appreciate your time on a busy day and late in the afternoon on Friday for you on the East Coast. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for your scholarship. Thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. Pure, potent plant power. Best product I've ever taken. You can access it, too, by going to balanceofnature.com. Just make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Balanceofnature.com. They're fruits and veggies. Discount code BALANCE. 
the Salman Rushdie story since 1989 forward is a fascinating story of many layers involving free speech, involving multiculturalism. Mark and I uh, only, uh, real Mark Garrick and I only just began to scratch the surfaces of it. But if you want a very detailed account that does cover all these um, norms, um, you want to read Christopher Hitchens' chapter on Salman Rushdie in his autobiography, Hitch 22. Hitchens knew him well, in fact, secreted him in his um, in his own apartment uh, when Salman Rushdie was traveling to Washington, D.C. Hitchens is just such an amazing writer. Thinking about what Rule said about the state of Iran today, I'm thinking of something Hitchens wrote in his book about the Iranian revolution. Such a wordsmith. Hitchens wrote, At the moment, he's talking about 1979, at the moment when Iran stood at the threshold of modernity, I'll do that again, (laughs) at the moment when Iran stood at the threshold of modernity, a black-winged ghoul came flapping back from exile on a French jet and imposed a version of his own dark and heavy uniform on a people too long used to being bullied and ordered around. Close quote. The black-winged ghoul was, of course, the Ayatollah, The people too long used to being bullied and ordered around with the Iranians. May they be free. May they be free. The world will be more free once they are free. God bless you all. We will be right back with our third hour, my monologue, and a bunch more coming right up. 